Okay, so tonight is the last of a series on political theory of halacha. Um, the topic is Lishni Mishurat Hadin, exploring the difference between halachic and religious obligation. Um, and I want, the way I framed the question was, is everything that God wants you to do a halachic chiv, and everything God wants you not to do a halachic isur? If not, why not? And can religious and halachic obligations ever conflict? So, in many ways, um, this is part of, I guess, about uh, coming up on 30-plus years of response to an essay by Ravar Lichtenstein um, called Is There an Ethic Independent of Halakha? in which uh, he basically concludes that it's only a question of definitions. And I want to try and frame the question differently so that that, that, so that, that answer at the end is as unsatisfying as it sounds and see if we can make um, some progress on the way. The, what I want to start with is a presumption that there is a religious obligation to always do the right thing and never to do the wrong thing. So then it's, right, if you assume that all religious obligations are halakha, which is the way Revolutionary's expansive definition functions, so then it's a tautology. Right? If, if, all, uh, if everything you have to do is halakhic obligation, everything you can't do is halakhic prohibition, so then, uh, right, and you know, there's, no, there's no space there's no space left. But there's also no purpose to the word halakha. Uh, the word halakha only serves a purpose if in some way halakhic obligations are different from other kinds of obligations. And if you say, right, if, you, if, you, if you say that everything you have to do is what God wants you to do, uh, sorry, everything that God wants you to do you have to do, and everything that God wants you to do is halakha, so we haven't gained anything, if in fact there are differences in kind of obligation. Now, it seems to me that there are obviously differences in kind of obligation that you can't really argue that there aren't. So I gave you, as a starter on the, on the sheet, I gave you of the 13 um, things there. So nine of them are examples of cases where it seems that there is a difference between what we would say is the halakha and what, um, and what the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do is. All right, so we have... We have the category where we say that you're patur midene adam v'chayav midene shemayim, right? that you're obligated to the laws of heaven and not the laws of human beings. So that seems to set up at least two different kinds of consequences. You have obligations v'lotet midene shemayim. You have obligations to fulfill the, the, um, your obligations it turns heaven, but not your obligations toward human courts. There's nikra rasha. If you do that, you are described negatively. There's ein ruach hachamim nochehemena, that... Um, the spirit of the sages is not happy with you. There's mikabel misha para that we make you take an oath, telling you how horrible the thing you just did is. Chusaramana that you're un, right, you're a person who is, who is untrustworthy. There's yesh tar omit that you've done something, you've done something which um, you've done something where somebody else has a valid complaint against you, even though that complaint is not actionable. Um, there's midat chasidut. Right, this is the, the way of the pious, and there's midat stone. Which is the right? Which is the way the way of the uh, the worst people the worst people imaginable? Because all these seem to be terms that are something other, sorry, something other than um, than necessarily legal categories. And then we have finally the last category, which is called lifnim mishurat hadin, which we'll talk about extensively. Um, that's ten. And then to jump ahead, we have this category in thirteen called the very lishma. Lishma is perhaps the most fun category is when there appears to be a religious obligation to break the law. What makes something an Avera is the fact that it's a transgression, it goes against the law, but the Talmud says that somebody who transgresses the law, Lishma, is at least as good as somebody who obeys the law, Shalom Lishma. 
with examples of behavior that we do not wish people had not done, like Yael seducing Sisera, uh, and thereby saving the Jewish people. Okay, so the problem is that I'm claiming that all of these things are examples of obligations or prohibitions different than law, but it doesn't work if we don't have a definition of what law is. All right, what, what tells you that these are different than law? Um, and the truth is that I put all these things together, but they don't belong together. There really are, um, there, is a, there is a fundamental notion of what law is, which people assume, so I want to state that and then challenge it, and then we have to ask the question of whether my categorizations are, um, are valid or viable at all. The first level, if I ask people, what is the difference between a legal obligation and non-legal obligation? Right, something that is halakha and something that is not halakha, and I can't, can't, don't tell me it's what God wants and God doesn't want, because God wa- always wants you. God always wants you to do the right thing. The simple answer people tell you usually is that law is enforceable, and non-legal obligations are not enforceable. So the problem is that halakha contains within itself right, things that are clearly law in the sense that they're really defined and worked out, and we can state very specifically, you may not do this, and nonetheless are not, um, are not actionable. And then there are things that um, we say are not law, and nonetheless we might enforce it. So for example, there is a category of law, personally called mitzvot shematan tzcharan b'tzidan, mitzvot that the Torah lists, and then the Torah tells you that the Torah tells you um, what the reward for them is next is next to each other, what God's reward is. And our principle is that we do not compel people to observe mitzvot. That the Torah tells you the reward for. Now they are law, in the ordinary use of the sense that they're really clearly defined. That it's not there's no issue of optionality or anything like that. And yet we say we don't enforce them. On the other hand, so there is a position. That um, and which is certainly true for some categories of people, and that we um, that we are kofeh on lifnim shirat hadin. Right? Even though lifnim shirat hadin seems to be defined as not law, there are halachic positions that we compel. We are kofin omidat zom. Right? We enforce people not to behave the way the, the sodomites did, even though that's not a legal prohibition. So, I, I think that the standard way we have of thinking about law and that law is enforceable, and non-law is not enforceable, doesn't work if one is trying to figure out why some things are halakha, and some things are not halakha. Um, it doesn't, right, there's no way to get the term halakha to be coterminous with enforceable, and there's no way to claim that all things are not halakha are not enforceable, that the categories bleed into each other, and therefore we need, right, if we want to try and understand what the differences are in the types of religious obligation, we have to find a category other than enforceability. Um, now, I have um, prima facie offered a second kind of second kind of definition, which is that law is more rigorously formulated than other things. But we'll have to see also whether that is sustainable. Um, also, there is a, there's another way to sort of cheat, but which is hard to imagine which is to claim that enforceability includes not only human enforceability, but divine enforceability. So there are mitzvot that God, enfor- that, that God enforces, the mitzvot that human beings enforce, and then there shouldn't be anything else. Right? What would it mean to have, an obliga- right, to have a religious obligation that God doesn't reward or punish for, which is the only way God enforces? Right? There's no, right, you can't get injunctions right, where God prevents you from doing something. 
at all, right? the only way the only way that God enforces anything is reward or punishment. So I don't think that that move, although it's tempting in some ways, to claim that certain kinds of unenforceable obligations become law in the sense that they become enforceable because God because God enforces them doesn't seem to me to be sufficient either, because I presume, again, that if you have to do everything God wants, that God rewards you if everything he wants done, and punishes you if everything he doesn't want done. And then you can work out your own theologies about whether that affects your behavior uh, or not. So what I'm saying is that that's usually the way the conversation goes, um, that in the usual meaning of the word law in that conversation, it doesn't work at all. So I think it is true that there is an intuitive, legitimate sense that there are lots of there are different kinds of obligation of religious obligations in Judaism, and it might be useful to describe to say that the different kinds of obligation in Judaism are halacha and not halacha. It might be useful. Rabbi Lichtenstein argues that those are meaning those are ultimately not the right terms because you can define everything as halacha, but if that's the case, you'll just need another term. Right and. and so I, th- I think that for convenience sake, we can distinguish between halacha and not halacha, and we can probably say that the best translation of halacha is law, but we don't have definitions yet that work. Since we don't know what the word law is, right, we're translating one unknown uh, with another, and to try and work this out, we may have to come up with new definitions of law, or it might be that we should break that translation and say that halacha should not be defined as law, whether you, know, you can immediately go to things like halacha as the path or something like that, you prefer it to law. Uh, the problem is that all the things which define halakha in some way other than law will probably fail to capture the difference that we're working with. Right, we want to capture the difference between din and lishnim yishrat ha-din. Right, so if we define it as the path, well, the path that works, right, the path includes both din and lishnim yishrat ha-din. So, right, so we're not, so, so I think that, you know, the first thing I just want to set out is to say, is to work with the assumption that our intuition is right, that there are, in fact, different kinds of obligation, and try to demonstrate that the, we don't yet have the philosophic vocabulary that is useful to describe that. Okay, yes, Yuri, you have something you want to say? Um, couldn't we just say that, we, I know it's cheating, it kind of undermines things, we could still say, we could still cheat by saying things God won't punish you for not doing. He could still reward you for doing them. He won't punish you for not doing them. Aha, uh-huh. and the and the and the uh, when when they're framed as prohibitions, same same thing. The things that God will reward you for not doing, yes. but not punish you for doing. Yes. Okay, you can try and see if that works theologically, and if that captures it. I don't think it will. But you can, but logically, you're right. I haven't eliminated that possibility. Uh, I don't really know what it means. You know, in general, I would say the theologies that depend on my being able to keep score uh, are you know, or answers that depend on my being able to keep score and how God does things seem to me a little bit iffy. Or at least I wouldn't say them with confidence. Yes, Mr. Brahma. You seem to be assimilating a lot of things that have very distinct terms. Uh-huh. And there are a lot of terms for categories, and yet there is none that, assimil- that assimilates all of these. We have all kinds of subdivisions within Din and within Halakha and within Das and all kinds of things. Why do you think you get to assimilate all of these categories under a label that doesn't exist? Well, so my, what I'm trying to argue right now is that there's a binary, which is Halakha and not Halakha, and that not halacha may divide further, but that the first level is that that halacha itself may divide further. And you're going to tell me that when we come to the division, some of the things I have put in the not halacha side may really end up on the halacha side. Okay, that's true. That's you're right. 
Right, you know, right now I'm really just trying to work with a binary halacha and not halacha. Um, and all I'm trying to, you know, it seems to me that a lot of these categories at least will fit in the not halacha stage. Yes? On, on maybe the other side, would you say that doing the right thing and not, and not doing the right thing and ethics are the same thing, or are they different, not necessarily maybe overlapping, but not... So I'm not, you know, in different frameworks, we could, what I'm saying right now is that all things that one is supposed to do are religious obligations. So if you're supposed to be ethical, then to be ethical is religious obligation. And there are certain areas where, where, halakha, where, you know, where, we, where ethics clearly seem to be halakha, and other areas where ethics seem not to be halakha, and I need to explain what, what the difference is. I could come up with a much fancier taxonomy, which I generally do, and claim that, you know, that in the realm of the things you have to do, there is the ethical, the moral, and the holy. And that those are not actually commensurate terms. All right, but, I'm not, right, but I'm not committing myself you know, tonight to do it. Chaim, what do you want to say? You ready? No? Okay. So, what I want to start with is, since the term that we tend to work with is Lishdim Mishrat Hadin, but Lishdim Mishrat Hadin, as I pointed out, is a problematic term because it seems to be enforceable in at least some people in at least some circumstances. So we should at least begin with uh, trying to understand what that term means. Um, so I'm going to quote one of my favorite Gemaras, but you'll have to come um, Friday night if you want to hear me sing it. <laughs> Although it is, I think, one of the best songs in, uh, in recent, recent Jewish memory. So there's a, uh, there's a bright, there's a, uh, it takes a very long time, I should warn you. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a bright, uh, which tells the story of Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha. Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha is the Kohen Gadol. And so one Yom Kippur, as, as the Kohen Gadol, he goes in, right, he, go, he goes into the Kodesh Kodeshim of the Beit HaMikdash, which is described as Lifnei, in front of Vilifnim. Okay, so that word lifnim is going right, to play in a, right, it's a leitmotif, or, or a milamancha, or something like that. Um, and he sees, and here we have some kind of mystical vision, uh, of some notion, presumably of God, although if you're an angelologist, right, so these could be angels' names also, that becomes a whole theological debate. He sees some, sor- some form of divine being, which I prefer to believe is in some way a representative of God, sitting on a holy and exalted throne. So who's, right, what is he living out? He's living out Yeshaya's inaugur- right, inauguration prophecy. Right, he has the same scene. He has the same scene as he has the same scene as Yeshaya, as Yeshaya, as Yeshaya Hanavi. Okay, and God, right, so God is sitting on this exalted throne, and He says to him, Yishmael, my son, bless me. And so Yishmael says to him, May it be your will before you, right, or may there be will before you, that your mercies conquer your angers, that your mercy be revealed above your attributes, that you practice with your children in accordance with the attribute of mercy, and God not. So here's the translation I want to, first translation thing I want to point out is, usually when you ask people for a translation of they reply with an English idiom, and the English idiom is, beyond the letter of the law. Okay, but there's no letter in the Hebrew. Right, there's a shura. So it's beyond the line of the law. And then, it doesn't say beyond. It says within. But that would translate very badly into English. We say Lifnim Adin means within the line of the law, because our whole point is that this right, that this is supposed to be in contrast to the law. So what does the line of the law mean? Why is this a blessing? Passion. That's an excellent question. Hold that for now. Maybe we'll have an answer. But let's start with what does it mean? 
right, to go within the line of the law when you're supposed to be going outside the line of the law. Isn't that the whole point? Okay, so let's remember, where does the high priest go? The high priest goes lifnim, all the way in. The Holy of Holies. Okay, so what we have to do is, we have to reorient ourselves visually. The usual image people have is, there's the law, right, that's where we're standing, and right, that's, the law encloses you, and then when you go lifnim in you go beyond the line of the law which is enclosing you. But that is not the rabbinic image. The rabbinic image, and you can find this in some places, is that where is the Kodesh Kodeshim? Kodesh Kodeshim is all the way inside, and the Kodesh Kodeshim is surrounded by the temple, and the temple is surrounded by, it's surrounded by, the, camp of the, by, the, camp, by the camp of the Jews, or the desert, right, the Mishkan. So here's the thing. The earthly encampment is parallel to the heavenly encampment. So what happens to the Jews in the desert is the same thing that gets up in heaven. And what is is the law is a battle line of angels that guard entrance to God. To go listen to Hadin is to penetrate past the law into, right, into the inner sanctum where God is. And if we, have, if we go through this text and you try and figure out what's the opposite of din in this text, what is din contrasted with? Rachamim. So to get, the goal of Snim din is to get past din to Rachamim. So now we have to figure out right, what is, right, if that's right, is this actually all right, a useful metaphor for thinking about the difference between halachic and non halachic obligations? The halachic obligations are those that emerge from din, and non-halachic obligations are those that emerge from rachamim. And what does it mean to have an obligation emerging, uh, emerging from rachamim? All right, that's one framing. I'm not going to do more than framing tonight, but that's, uh, that's one framing that I want you to have in your head. So that, that may be the fundamental difference. And the thing that, I really, that really has to be kept in mind is that the word lishnim really means that. Lishnim means further in. Uh, the metaphor that Chassidi Ashkenaz have, which is really um, interesting and challenging, is that all the subordinates of God are obligated to follow the rules. If you want, uh, if you want um, clemency, if you want a pardon, you have to break through the bureaucrats and actually get to the person with authority, being with authority. So the goal of Shnimi Shrahadin is to break through things that are only authorized by office and get to the, and get to the actuality of authority. Right, so that's one, one organizing framework. Okay, second. Let me turn the page. Um, so Ramban, Vayikra Yud Bet, a very famous Ramban, um, try, right, tries to figure out the meaning of you shall be holy. And he tells you that the Torah prohibits sexual transgressions and forbidden foods, but permits marital sexuality and the consumption of meat and wine, which in principle, he says, leaves room for you to spend all your time engaged in permitted sexuality and eating. And furthermore, right, so you can be among the drunkards and gluttons, and the Torah never tells you that you're not supposed to speak vulgarly, so you can do that all the time. And he comes up with this great term that you can be a naval birshut haturah, you can be a disgusting person, a Bulgarian, with the Torah's authority, Right, so he has a cat, right, which seems to suggest that there is here a, that you're acting legally, just you're doing the wrong thing. 
And therefore, he says that since the Torah doesn't want this to be to, uh, doesn't want this to be said, so the Torah comes along and after specifying the prohibitions, it commands generally that we should be separated. So this is the right. This is the um, the, beacon, the the banner for Lichtenstein's claim that really the only difference between din and other things is that din is is, prescri- is prescribed specifically, and other things are prescribed generally. Um, but really, even the general things are halacha. They're just not framed as specifically. And Ramban goes, Ramban says, now why should this happen? So Ramban elsewhere, um, and all these Rambans are cross-referenced, cross-reference each other, says, this is an important point. Um, this, is where, this is on Vyasita Yashar Vatov, that you should do the straight and the, and the good. For it is impossible to mention in the Torah all the practices of a person with his neighbors and peers, and all his commerce and all the rules of social and political stability, Rather, after mentioning many of them, list of interpersonal mitzvot, um, it returns to say generally that you must do the good and the straight in all matters, to the point that this includes compromising lawsuits, vilif nim mishurat hadin. Okay, so Ramban right, really leaves you space for the fudge. Because he, right, he says that the Torah has concrete prohibitions, and it has, it has more general prohibitions. All of them are law, Lifnim Mishurat HaDin is actually Din, and the only difference is the formulation. And if you'll ask, so why, why isn't everything law if really the obligation is fundamentally the same? And the answer is that um, the Torah doesn't have um, infinite space. Now, that's an interesting question. Why doesn't the Torah have infinite space? Usually, the no- space. It would be too long. The Torah would have to be an infinite book if it really covered every situation. Now, that's, it's not really a great answer. First of all, it bothered, reminds me too much of Isaac Asimov's explaining why the Torah believes the world is 6,000 years old. Also, because Moshe wants to write the real history of the world, and Aaron says, you have this much parchment, <laughs> this, much, this much ink, and that's why, right, that's why the world history is cut down to 6,000 years. The explanation, explanation doesn't do it for me um, in, in those terms. But... Um, more than that, um, we have had a lot more specificity. We have the Mishnah and the Gemara, and right, we got all the, right all those shells over there. So the Torah could at least have been that long. Why not? We have books that long anyway. Right? Why not make those? Why not make those the? Um, why not make those the Torah? Um, nor does it explain. It doesn't, that doesn't explain anything about the choice, which things to write specifically and which things to write generally. Why it was important to write something specifically and some things generally. And it also doesn't really account for the term Naval Bershut HaTorah. Um, unless you say, which you can read, it say Ramban says that if the Torah didn't have these general commands, then you would be a Naval Bershut HaTorah. But now that you have these general commands, you can't be a Naval Bershut HaTorah because the Torah tells you not to be a Naval. Right, that takes a lot of the power out of the Ramban, um, but I can't deny that it's a um, possible reading. Yes, Chaim. Yeah. Well, within every mitzvah, there you generally there is there is din and lefim yishur hadin, and so Ramban, you know, so I don't I don't think honestly, I think Ramban more captures the problem, and more you know and and prevents um, prevents the strong claim that that all religious that religious because 
whatever, uh, because that halakha actually contains everything that God wants you to do or not to do, and therefore if it's not halakha, right, we must be indifferent to it. Right? I think he prevents that claim. But I don't know how much he advances it. In a, in a sense, you could say that he tries to, Ramban is um, responding to Yeshaya Leibovitz, who in many ways is in, in dialogue with this, because Leibovitz tries to argue that religion is only interested in obedience. And ethics and morality and things like that are not really connected to religion. Yeshaya Leibovitz. Um, he's very into ethics, but he's very but he but he, go, he goes out of his way to argue that ethics uh, and meaning and all those sorts of things are not religious categories; they're humanistic categories. A you know, classic example is he thinks that the experience of prayer should be no different if you pray the phone book than if you pray spectacular poetry. Because the experience of prayer is fulfilling the obligation of prayer. It happens that we're lucky or nice, right, that God has been kind and allowed us to read poetry, so we enjoy it more. But the religious experience is not connected to the meaning of the poetry. The religious experience is the, uh, is the is saying words at times that God told us to. Why can't we be reading the Ramadan as having an approach which is Okay, so we could so we could so we could try to claim that Ramban wants to argue that these generalized mitzvot are not supposed to be defined, right? That actually, right? That that those books over there are doing the wrong thing if they tell you what it means to be holy, because the purpose of the Torah was to tell you these things you have to do and then be holy. And any attempt at defining them further, let alone turning them into formal law. Uh, right, would be would be a violation of the purpose of Torah. So you can make that claim. No, on the contrary. Yeah. Mainly, it's a context, but that we are continually defining by ourselves. Uh, so you want to claim it's... As time goes on, so all those books are on the contrary in the same... Uh, so autonomy for, autonomy for the Jewish people as a whole. What? Autonomy for the Jewish people as a whole to define these mitzvot. That's right. And, and in certain cases, so long as it's not a strict thing, which is come on, where okay so I have, I have so I have, I have two two prima facie difficulties with this um, one is that Ramban never says anything of the sort uh, right he says there's a pragmatic problem you can't list all these things specifically he doesn't say these are the things well that's different all the context of life we can't do it. It's not the same as there are areas of life that we specifically don't want to. Those are very different claims. So, so, no, it's because we okay, so that's, that's a because it's not in the text. That's what I think. You want to argue it? I'm fine with it. But it's not in the text. Secondly, I think that God leaves us lots of space to define the other mitzvot also. So I'm not sure in the end that we're that much more binded, but bounded. But I'm willing to allow the possibility for now. Yeah, um, Yoni, what do you want to say? Um, yeah, I missed it, but I'm not sure I get why you assume that Right. So I said that you can play, you can say that, take a look at the point that really there are just 
every, all, all obligations are of the same form, just some of them the Torah precise form, formulates rigorously, and some of them the Torah, the Torah formulates generally. Right, that's right, that would be the, and really Ramban is saying nothing interesting at all. Yeah, you can say that. It, you know, sort of, uh, and in order to say that, you have to say that Naval B'Shosh HaTorah is what would have happened had the Torah not had these general things. Okay, I'm okay, right? If that's the case, so the Ramban is really not interesting in, you know, in almost any way, and okay, that's fine. It used to be an interesting Ramban, it's not now. I'm okay with that. You know, I spend lots of time. I just note that... Um, it's you know that you can Ramban's paradox is entailed in that he includes in the Sitting Yasharva so Blifnim Mishra Hadin. When we redefine the Right. So it may be the Ramban in the end, you know, exact most people read Ramban as being important because he sets up this category of obligation which is non legal. It might the Ramban is actually is arguing exactly the opposite. No, don't think that. All religious obligations are exactly the same. Right, Rabbi Clapper, you started at the beginning by claiming that there's all this evidence for non halakhic obligation. It's false. It's not even a matter of definition. So There's no we, such thing. How else do you explain the Quran Therefore, the textual legal things? In Achinami. In Achinami. So all of us are going to try, right, to figure out ways in which the right because what Ramban fails to explain is why these are listed specifically and why these are not. And so to make him interesting, we're going to try and find explanations for that. But you're okay in the end saying, nope, maybe he has no explanations for that. He just was trying to resolve. The, uh, the, he was just trying to resolve the behavioral problem. He was just trying to argue with Leibovitz, and that's it. Okay, that's the case. Ramban's not helpful. Yes, but once Leif Nimishur Hadin goes, it becomes very hard. Right? It's not clear Ramban. Not clear Ramban has any. Once you have these general things, and you think that be holy, so he's got to be holy, right? Let's be Hashem Kedoshim. He's got to be good. Which is um, he's got to be shabbistic, <laughs> um, right? So we, right, so he really has he has to be ethical, he has to be moral. If you just you know, in, in my terms, be shabbistic is really his be holy, but he defines holiness different than I do. Yeah, it could be he's covered all the bases of value, and everything is halacha, and Ramban turns ironically into the first panhalachist. Panhalachist. Right, the first person who thinks that all religious obligations are halachan exactly the same way. <coughs> if you take the position that he thinks that, if you ask me why do you ever, anything that God wants you to do, he thinks there's a command in the Torah that tells you you have to do it, and you are commanded to, do, and you're, and you're commanded to be holy in exactly the same way that you were commanded to not, right, not to, um, not to, uh, yeah, that's what Yoni wants to argue. He is, right, he's exactly opposite from you. That's fine. I'll let the two of you fight it out. Um, Yoni enjoys these fights. It's okay. Um, okay, so, I'm not finding full. I think he doesn't solve the problem explicitly of why some things are listed and some things aren't, which is really the interesting question. Right? His, the problem he resolves is why are there things that should be forbidden that aren't listed? And he explains because there are too many, so we couldn't list them all. And then he ignores the question of why these are listed and those aren't. Okay, I've got to bracket this. i got to go on. i got to go on. Okay. A very, very different perspective. It shows up in the Rambam in the Marina Bukhim. So the Rambam says, and here you have my English translation of one or another Hebrew version of the Arabic. Uh, among, among the things that you likewise ought to know 
is that the Torah does not consider the isolator individual, and the command was not given with a view to the minority of cases. Rather, in everything that it is desirable to accomplish, be it an outlook or a character trait, or an action that is effective, only the things that are a majority are considered, and no attention is paid to something that rarely occurs, nor to the damage that will occur to an individual human because of that decree in Torah governance. This is a very strong, and often people find this a shocking um, passage, because Ramban is describing biblical, right, biblical literature. And he says, when the Torah has a command, you should know the Torah is not, the Torah, when it gives this command, is not interested in what will happen some of the time, but only what will happen most of the time. It's not, right, and it's not interested in what will happen to individual human beings. It's interested in what will happen to the overall class. Why? Because the Torah is a divine thing. And therefore you can learn about it from natural things, where the general utilities found in them include and necessarily entail private damages, as has been explained in our words and the words of others. So God creates um, tides, and tides are a good thing, but sometimes tides lead to tsunamis. Tsunamis are a very bad thing for a whole limited group of people. That's okay. Right? That's okay. All the forces of nature ultimately are really good for humanity as a whole. Right? They will make our life possible. The context of nature is what makes our life possible. It's not about nature. He says that you can learn about the Torah from nature, just like, just like nature is good, even though sometimes people are struck by lightning. And you could say, God, why did you create the world with this cool electrical stuff? Sometimes that's going to lead to people being struck by lightning. When God created the world, he wasn't interested about individual people struck by lightning. And the Torah is God's mind, just like the world is God's mind. So guess what? If you follow the Torah, some people are going to get struck by lightning. And that is inherent in the nature of Torah. And in case you don't believe him, he goes on. Right? He says, on the basis of this distinction, you should not be astonished that the purposes of the Torah are not fulfilled in every individual. Rather, it follows necessarily that there will, pe- there will be people whom that Torah governance does not bring to perfection, as the forms of natural species do not, uh, do not achieve all that necessarily follows them from them in each individual member of the species. For everything comes from one deity and one actor given from one shepherd, and the reverse of this is impossible. We have already explained that the impossible has a fixed nature that will never change. So if he tells you, you know what, you're going to find people, they are really, really from, and they're bad people. Their character doesn't improve. Um, they're not healthy. And in general, you look at them and you say, well, it's a Naval Bishusatura. That's okay. Because the nature of the Torah is that it's a divine document, and divine documents deal with general, divine, just like God created the world in generalities, um, right? so it would be good for most people most of the time. So too, he created the Torah, so it would be good for most people most of the time. He goes on to say, Yeah, we're, 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 those such people are bad people. Yeah, they're exactly right. Exactly right. All true. All true. But there are going to be people like that. And the fact that there are people like that doesn't mean that the Torah is wrong. Doesn't, doesn't prove that any right. That's, there are going to be people like that because right, people who follow Torah and end up becoming you know, ritualistic automatons with no sense of ethics, are struck by lightning. <laughs> right? That's what happens. Without, you know, without 
you know, any invidious comments about people who are struck by lightning in specific places on the roads in specific places. Um, in any case, some of you got that. <laughs> um, the, um, so furthermore, on the basis of this distinction, it would not be proper for the commandments to be influenced by the changing conditions of human beings in the times, in the way that the preparation of medicine is influenced. This is a lot of, here you have a lot of fun because here the Ramban is, the Ramban, the Ramban reverses modern categories. We tend to think of Western medicine is objective and doesn't take into account the individual patient, whereas um, we think religion is supposed to be very specific. So the Ramam says that, no, actually it is medicine that is supposed to be formulated in accordance with the mix of humors in every person, and so there's no such thing as a standard prescription. Every prescription has to be adjusted for the individual, uh, for the individual patient, which is what we now call Eastern medicine. If you want to plug, you can read uh, the web that has no weaver. Uh, which is a really good book about Eastern medicine and how it connects to this. It was very helpful to me in understanding the Ted Kapchuk, who was also a very cool person. Uh, it was very helpful for me to understanding what was going on in, in Rambam. Uh, whereas he thinks law, law is supposed to be general. Law is supposed to be what we think of medicine now. Medicine is supposed to be what we think of as law now. Right. Medicine is supposed right, that medicine is supposed to be completely functioned, completely adjusted to the individual. Law is supposed to be um, very, very. Uh, very, very general. So in a different context, um, I have a shear which I call Should Postkin Be Doctors of the Soul? In which I argue that Ramban here, what Ramam is talking about here is the law as it comes from legislators and not the law as it comes from judges. Uh, in the same way that the fact that God designed the world in such a way that some people would be struck by lightning and that wasn't, that wasn't something that God was directly concerned about when it constructed the world, doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to go around putting up lightning rods if we think they actually work. Right? Our, jo- our job, right, and doctors are supposed to heal people, even though the laws of nature are set up in such ways that some people will catch horrible diseases, but we're okay healing them. So by the same token, um, Postkim, um, when confronted by cases in which the law is causing damage to individuals, so Postkim are supposed to put up lightning rods. So if you see somebody for whom right, the unaltered, the unmediated effect of the law will be to turn them into Naval Bashusatura, so your job as a postdoc is to try and put up a lightning rod and make sure they don't turn out that way. If you see a community that is about to be swept away by a tsunami, uh, you're supposed to put up the halachic equivalent of seawall, if you think seawalls work for tsunamis, which I don't think they work very well at all. Um, so now there's not much you can do about tsunamis, but you can do something about, high, about, uh, right, about rising sea levels. But Fundamentally, um, fundamentally, what Ramam seems to be saying is that there is, there is something about the nature of law that, prevent, that prevents it from being uh, attuned to individuals, and therefore it might be, and this, right, and this ties in with what Zephron I wanted to say in the Ramban, it might be the Ramam will say that there are areas that are not supposed to be turned into law because those are the areas where we think it would be better to allow things to be adjusted for individuals as opposed to treating everything as a class. Um, right, so that would be, right, that would, right, that would be, and so the, the areas which are left to be listimishrohadin are the things which some people, which for some people will be the best thing, but for other people will be damaging, and the percentage of people who will be damaged by making that an obligation is too great, um, and therefore we therefore, therefore and therefore we leave it 
Therefore, we leave it um, open. And that ties into even the position, because even the people who hold Kofina Lesnimishrahadin will often believe they're only Kofa the people who are on the level that they should do it to keep Lesnimishrahadin. That at least is my teacher of a um, solution to many of these issues that actually, we, depending on how we evaluate your spiritual level, we compel you to do more and more. It's not that these things are optional, but they're optional, right? But the degree of obligation depends on the nature of the person you are, and that suggests that the that the, dif- the difference between these spaces are it's not really our experience, but it's um, but it's an evaluation on the legal level that sometimes that since law by its nature will always relate to classes and not to individuals, so you have to be very careful when you turn things into law. Right? Every law has a cost. There will always be some people for whom this law is spiritually damaging. Just like every law of nature has a choice. And then that becomes a, um, that becomes a paradigm, I think, for thinking about areas of halacha generally. One of the areas that we have not thought about enough in contemporary halacha is the cost of making things obligations. Part of it is just the loss of autonomy per se, that there's, you know, that there's room and space for autonomy as such. But part of it is just that there are lots of things that are good for lots of people, but not for everyone. And we tend, to, we tend to, because of our desire to turn everything into law, so we end up legislating some people's religious sensibilities on everybody. And it might very well be there are things we could say, look, I really wish everyone wanted to do this. I really wish everyone, everybody was beneficial for every, I really wish that everyone did this and they got the right meaning of it. But instead of yelling at them because, you know what, this is, what, this is your obligation and you're, right, and you're making it meaningless, we should say, oh, you know what, since that's going to be meaningless to most people, we shouldn't make it an obligation. Um, right? You think interesting ways in which we do that. Lamasa is talking about the um, how many uh, how many piyutim you should say in in uh, in Yom davening. So we've kind of come to the realization, you know, what that you know piyutim works at a certain time. They don't work so well anymore in communities from whom the poetry is meaningless, and so we've cut it down. I think that's probably a very good decision, as opposed to continuing having us say them at great length and everyone bored out of their mind and yelling at them because they're not good at understanding medieval poetry. I myself wish that everyone, you know, I myself wish that we could find other genres of poetry. And, you know, I, I, that, that, um, that on the whole, uh, on the whole, um, the sort of, uh, the, the alphabetical, alphabet, alphabetical repetitive rhyming acrostics, whatever, don't, don't do it for me as great, you know, as inspirational religious literature. And if I had my choice, there'd be a lot more Wallace Stevens. Okay. Some of you may have not be affected by Wallace Stevens at all. But uh, you know, I tend to think that in lots of these days we could just read the idea of order at Key West and we would come out ahead if we were just looking for, uh, just looking for inspirational experiences. Um, okay, so that's, a, that's another frame. So here's one more frame, which I think, um, which I think is really um, a useful frame. This is from uh, a, a Harvard Law professor who I, I don't think is still alive. A uh, book was published in 1964. Uh, called Lon Fuller. I don't think I, I don't think so. I don't think it's alive, but I could be wrong. Um, and it was brought to my attention in a book by the Israeli scholar uh, Benjamin Brown in his work on the Chavis, on his work on the Chavis Chaim. Um, and I confess that really I know this through I know this through Dr. Brown. And I was looking on the web now and trying to find the original and realized that I had not really adequately studied the original. So my understanding of it is probably going to be a melange of what Dr. Brown did with it and what and what uh, Professor Fuller said originally. Uh, and you'll see if it makes sense or not. So here is Professor Fuller's uh, actual words. 
The content of these chapters in the book he's putting out called The Morality of Law has been chiefly shaped by a dissatisfaction with the existing literature concerning the relation between law and morality. This should be familiar to us. And so is this, so is this, um, this year. This literature seems to be deficient in two important respects. The first of these relates to a failure to clarify the meaning of morality itself. Definitions of law we have in almost unwanted abundance, but when law is compared with morality, it seems to be assumed that everyone knows what the second term of the comparison embraces. Thomas Reed Powell used to say that if you can think about something that is related to something else without thinking about the something to which it is related, then you know how to think uh, legally. Um, so that's an interesting claim. And I think it's a fairly good description of the way much of the conversation has taken place, that um, we talk about halakha as opposed to something else, but really not so interested in defining the something else, which we sort of think, well, everyone sort of knows what the right thing to do is. Uh, and that's what the other stuff is. The other stuff is the right thing to do. Uh, but if we're trying to define halakha as opposed to, as opposed to other things, it might be that we actually have to define the other things. Um, so in the present case, it seems to me, the legal mind generally exhausts itself in thinking about halakha and its content to leave unexamined the thing to which halakha is being related and from which it is being distinguished. So in my first chapter, an effort is made to redress this balance. This is done chiefly by emphasizing a distinction between what I call the morality of aspiration and the morality of duty. Okay, so those are the categories that he comes up with. The morality of aspiration and the morality of duty. Now here's what I got from Professor Brown, and you can tell me if you think this is what he really means. I'm not sure anymore. Um, what Professor Brown argues is that the Chafetz Chaim's work, Shmirat HaLashon, um, thought of as a standard book of halakha in the way, let's say, the Shulchan Aruch is, is a category error. Because the Shulchan Aruch are the things that you have to do, um, whereas the Shmirat HaLashon is a book really about what you would like to be. Right? You would like to be the kind of person who makes the decision Shmir HaLashon does. But nobody is. Nobody ever is. And if you all were, right, if, sorry, if one of you tries to play, say, one of you tries to be that in the real world, then you probably are hopelessly unsuccessful socially and you end up you know, being betrayed and assassinated and you know, totally, totally unaware of your surroundings. It doesn't, right, it doesn't work. Uh, you can't engage, right? You end up with these real stories where you know, you're, you're, living in, you're living in a society, but you're terrified of any actual human interaction because you're afraid that someone will tell you something of human interest. Um, right? So you celebrate when you can talk to farmers, you can finally get on trains and talk to farmers as opposed to intellectuals, farmers with whom you have no prior relationship because you know that they're going to talk about nothing but manure for hours. And that is your dream, to talk about nothing but manure for hours, because manure, right, you're pretty clear, unless you insult the quality of someone else's manure, you're pretty clear that you're not going to violate Hilkos Lashonara uh, in the process. That's a very, you know, that's a difficult description of the ideal, of the ideal life. Now, a society where everyone kept Shemir HaLashon, that would be incredible. But, and I tell you, I ran this, uh, it was one of my favorite GAN courses, a very atypical GAN course, I talk about this a lot, that, um, I had a conversation with, I believe, uh, Rabbi Mark Gottlieb and Professor Shalom Karmaif about whether, uh, you know, whether, whether teaching halacha actually, actually ever changed people. And my problem was that most attempts to change students are highly manipulative. 
And so I was very, very, I found it very problematic to teach things with the, ga- with the aim of changing people because you know, it seemed very, very manipulative and, and uh, not the way it should relate to students. But, and many of the, arg- particularly we're having an argument about Musr teaching. And I, was very, I, I found Musr teaching very problematic because it's almost always very, very manipulative. Um, say, like the, the story, the story that, I, that had made a deep impression on me at that time, I was reading um, some book of great Musr highlights in, um, in Shul. Uh, and so one of the one of the uh, one of the one of the one of the episodes that made a deep impact on me was about the author of Slobodka, who was really an astonishing pedagog- pedagogic figure, and it tells the story how the author of Slobodka was in the Beit Medrash, and there were two students of roughly equal roughly equal ability, and when one of them came over to the altar, he would greet him effusively and talk to him at, at length. When the other one came over to the altar, he would always be cold, and turn away, you know, and really never say anything to him. Flash, you know, flash forward 15, 20 years, the student whom the altar was always very cold to loses a parent and is sitting Shiva, and the altar shows up at his house and stays there all of Shiva and doesn't leave, talking the whole time. The student is very puzzled at the end of it, finally says, Rebbe, you know, I'm very grateful that you stayed all this time, but why is it that all of a sudden now you're being effusive to me when in Yeshiva you would never exchange words with me? And he would say, right, whereas that other fellow, right, I always thought you liked him much more than me, and he said, no. The other fellow um, has a Yetzirah to, to schmooze. So when he comes over to me, that's his Yetzirah Tov trying to find a way to schmooze in Torah. But you, right, you could really learn. When you come over to me, it's your Yetzirah trying to schmooze instead of learning. So you, I turned away from because otherwise you would learn. And him, I schmoozed with because that was, because that was better. So that's, you know, really, it can be read as the way the book wanted you to read it as this incredible knowledge the author had of the students, or it can be read as, oh my goodness, I don't really want to relate to my students without, with that lack of transparency. Um, so I set out, right, so, so I critiqued the Muslim movement, and I believe it's Rabbi Gottlieb and Professor Carmen. I don't remember, there, there are a bunch of car rides I have to get, and I don't have them straight in my head, uh, essentially challenged me, but of course you do want to change your students, so is there such a thing as, um, is there a possibility of transparent, pedi- right, trans- transparent transformative pedagogy? So I set out to, uh, to set up a model class, which was on, which was on Lashon Hara. Um, and I had the students the first day uh, tell me anonymously whether they were okay with the class being a class that was intended to affect behavior as opposed to a class that was supposed to teach to teach content, and they all agreed. Uh, and then, right, so I completely transformed the way I usually teach, which is usually all about information analysis. We use Joseph Telushkin's uh, words that words that heal, words that harm as a as a uh, as a textbook. And all the things that I that are about antithetical to me in the classroom, you know, journaling and and um, and uh, talking 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 about what you got right. It was really, really it's really a very interesting experience. Very interesting experience. And one of the challenges was. Really, what do you tell students about their relationship with their friends? Right, do, you tell them, do you tell students in your class that they have to become hermits? Because essentially, right, if you want people to keep a Lush and Hara journal, right, and you want them to say, I didn't hear any Lush and Hara this week, that, pro- that probably meant locking themselves up in the room. Certainly not reading a newspaper. Right, so that was a very... That was a, and then of course, you know, the, you know, in good Benjamin Franklin mode, they had the problem that the more, the better they got at Lashon Hara, the, the, the more difficult they had maintaining their spiritual humility. 
because they felt much superior to all the gossips around them. Right, so that was a right, so that was a, that, that I think is a very serious challenge. Um, so Benjamin Brown argues that um, what the what the Shemir Talashan should be read at is an example of aspirational morality. These are the things that ideally we think everyone would be doing, but as opposed to making them law, which is this is what everyone has to do now, we are much more tolerant of ourselves, not just societally. We're much, much more tolerant of ourselves when we fail. And I think that the argument is that that, um, that really could be true of lots of other areas of halakha and would force, uh, you know, and would make, enable one to rethink many areas of halakha if you start thinking of them as these are the halakhot that we don't really expect anyone to fully keep, but we want everyone to want to fully keep. Um, I think that all sorts of areas of halakha where that would be where it would be really interesting if that were the if that were the result. Okay, Pramakli, what did you want to say? What do you think normal people talk about with their friends? Pardon? What do you think normal people talk about with their friends? Normal people talk about their friends? Yeah. Friends. Really? That sounds very boring. Yeah, so some people, <laughs> some, you could create like a family, let's say, right? A private society where people just talk about Torah. Or you could just talk about, you know, fictional characters or... Or fictional characters, that works too. <laughs> or yeah, or people who have clearly given, who have clearly been mochel their right to, uh, have to, to what Lashon Hara. I think that's what most people talk about. I think you could talk about sports. There's so many topics that aren't included in Lashon Hara that it's, to say it's an example of aspirational morality seems like a very dim view of the world. Okay, interesting claim. It would seem to be a fairly good description of the social worlds that my students function in, based on their reports. But perhaps they all had very dim views of the world. <laughs> I tried to make this argument. Uh, I tried to make this argument. Um, but um, they, they seemed fairly convinced that it was being very, very hard. Whether the experiment worked or not, but I always talk about this as like one of the like, you know, unanswerable riddles of my life, where we finally dealt with it like the, the the climactic moment for me was when a student was uh, suspended from the school because of a drug issue, and then we had to go right, and they and the administration sent us into class to process, and right. So he said, here as a class, we will now test whether what we learned had any effect. We're going to have a Jewishly moral discussion of how right of right of, of how this took place, and obviously, what do you have to do? The first thing you have to do is decide if it's fair. In order to decide if it's fair, you have to write, obviously it makes a difference if it's a first offense or a previous, or not a first offense. In order to decide whether it's a first offense or not a first offense, you have to think of all the other bad things that the particular students might have done. Then you also have to know whether the administration treated, treated them in the same way they treated other students. That requires you to review all the other cases in which students have done wrong things, uh, in which the administration, <laughs> administration has punished them, and all this is inevitable, and I'm saying they're just tearing my hair out. <laughs> tearing my hair out. And this class has just been working hard for months. Uh, goes through this inevitable progression, and the on the other hand, I couldn't right. They were right. There wasn't any other way. If they want to be responsible members of a society, they have to evaluate the leaders, and the only way to evaluate the leaders is if they're fair. So, at the end, uh, I asked the students, "Did you think this discussion had been different um, because of the class?" And they all agreed that it had been completely different. Um, and I could not tell the difference. So that is the outcome of that experiment. I still don't know. <laughs> Because <laughs> right, they're all sure that it made an enormous difference, and I couldn't figure out what it was. So, um, so I still have a. Uh, it was one of these um, honest educational papers, uh, you know, where the result is I don't know. Yeah, the result is a subjective, 
subjective impression on the part of the students that the class succeeded. Um, okay, so this is, trans I, I think that that distinction um, is right, potentially really cool about lots of areas. Now, if you look at the way Fuller himself formulates it, and at least in the initial shallow presentation, so, yes, Alicia. Yeah. Uh, it's not clear. It's not. It's not enforceable all the time. You know, it might be that it's enforceable if people, you know, egregiously break it. Uh, but not if they break it privately in their own homes on occasion. Uh, you can adjust, You can play with it. Right? You don't just don't. You don't really react to people the same way. Right? When they don't live up to it, and you don't react to yourself the same way, and that may not relate to your issues of what you enforce and what you don't enforce. Uh, pardon? It's probably not like really fairly enforceable. It's more like the thing which it might be beneficial for society if we set up you know, traps so that one in right, one in fifty people who does this once in a while right gets punished and they pay their fine and it's okay. Um, you know, sometimes it's, there are certain things which is you know where it might be argued that it's good for a society to keep a lid on it. So we have a certain degree of enforcement, knowing that we're not going to catch everybody. Right, so that classically, that's what we did with prostitution, um, right, that, right, um, and gambling, and things like that, which, right, which, you know, which are aspirational morality things. As a society, we aspire to have a society in which nobody gambles and, no, right, and there's no prostitution. But in practice, right, the job is to manage it. Okay, yes, Josh? Can you apply the aspirational concept more to sort of in the Torah and something that's sort of derived in our, in our I don't know, because the has got lots of mitzvot in the Torah. <laughs> but um, I, the, I think areas like, let's say, the desire to shield oneself from all, um, all erotic stimulation. Right? So you can imagine, right, you know, that's a, that's a you know, religious ideal, but it's, not, it's an aspirational ideal, right? We really don't want people to turn themselves into sense-deadened people. So on the one hand, right, so really the, the ideal is to be erotically aroused only in the context, right, only in the specific context of marital sexuality. But you can't be that kind. Of, you can't really be that kind of person, right? That's not physically who human beings are, right? If you know, I, you know, you can't, you don't have switches that go on, that turn on and off that way in the vast majority of cases. So you figure out how to manage it. You don't, right? You, you, right, you try, you try and limit your exposure, right? You know, you, right, you try to, you try and move yourself out of situations. Right, which, which are dangerous, that kind of thing. Um, we want there not to be machloket in a community. But we also want people to stand up for what's right. So we have the aspiration of a perfectly peaceful community. But it's not necessarily the most important thing. But in general, the community should be one where people get along and, don't, right, and, and fights, don't, um, fights don't metastasize. I think there's a whole set of areas, um, a whole set of areas that that would work out, and then we can talk about which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, now, yes, Chaim? Especially when you were um, comparing it like sometimes catching people, okay. do you think that that was a, um, a conscious motivator for the way that things were set up? I don't know. We don't have, you know, since we don't have enforcement. Right, in all, at all, currently in the community, I would say that we do certainly, 
you know, if we looked at the way we set up communal norms, so there's some things that we let people get away with in their houses, and there's some things, right, and there's some things that we're more mocked about what people do privately, and there's some, you know, and I think that I think that generally as a society, you know, you put your enforcement efforts in different places, and then there's some things that sometimes people get caught. When they get caught, everyone makes a big deal out of it, even though you know that lots of other people do the same stuff. And maybe that's hypocrisy, and maybe it's a decent social choice. I'm open to it. Um, I'm open to it in um, in uh, in I- either way. I'm open to it either way in that because I-, I think we haven't thought enough about what you know what it would be like to have a to some extent with the people who do enforce things. We really dislike their priorities in those communities that have really at least in non-Orthodox we seem not to be happy with their priorities. And so our response is we're not going to enforce anything at least formally. Um, and then our issues often about enforcement are more about drawing identity boundaries and about what's really religiously important to people. Um, right? So you know, if we if it came down to it, right? So probably we should be probably be asked like what's most important for people spiritually, just on a level, right? It would probably have very little to do about gender roles in the synagogue. But on a right? But on a communal boundary level, that's right. That's what we choose to enforce in some ways, um, because that's how we define identity as a community. That's, I think that's not an unreasonable choice. Um, yes. I'm, I'm trying to understand the morality of duty. I'm trying to think about it, say, for something that is a little bit amorphous or can be amorphous, Kabeda Tavita and Bejimeka. Yeah. Where does the duty end and the Okay, excellent. Excellent question. And I that actually that actually was uh, I was thought about making that the the primary thing, and uh, but I turned I thought I'd done that too often, and I wasn't tr- sure I was it would be productive. But Kibbutz Alvaim is an excellent case, where um, we're told you don't you don't exhaust the mitzvah Kibbutz Alvaim even if when you see your, you know when your insane mother in, um, insists you bow down you right you get on all fours on the floor and you let her climb down for a bed by walking by walking on you, uh, or if she's on right, she's on the beach. Right, so you crawl on the, uh, hands and knees so that she doesn't have to touch the beach, and that doesn't exhaust the mitzvah of kibbutz avim. On the other hand, we're told that you have fulfilled the mitzvah of kibbutz avim if you have given your parents, uh, if you've given your desperately poor parents, uh, right, as much food as an ordinary person would eat, even if they're still hungry. So, if you follow the kibbutz kibbutz avim all the way, right, and you, assume, and you assume that all of this is duty then you end up being highly vulnerable to abuse. And I think that's bad. Uh, when I taught Kibbut Avahim and Gan, so a lot of it was about self-protection and the limits of Kibbut Avahim. And it's really interesting to see when you give kids the project, um, write Hilchot Kibbut Avahim in a way that you, would te- that you would teach at the next class, and you see which students um, emphasize the positive and which students emphasize the protection. Um, and that's, that's often a Tells you, tells you a lot about the relationship with their parents, part of why it makes me uncomfortable in some ways uh, to do it that way. Um, but I think that that's, a, um, I think that's exactly right. I think that, Kibbutz, that when we confuse the legal part of Hilkut Kibbutz aim with the aspirational part, um, we end up with very dangerous situations um, because you're not supposed to let your parents abuse you. Every time I give the, the public share in Hilkut Kibbutz aim, Somebody comes up to me afterwards and tells me that they were abused years ago and they've been carrying, they've been nursing this grudge against halacha in their hearts all their lives because their parents used Hilchut Kibbutz Avim as a weapon against them and said, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, then you're going against what God said and the shir liberates them. 
just about every time I give that share in a new location, somebody comes over and says that to me. And I think that's right. Um, how would you classify the thing? Or how would you deal with it? Say, Abraham always would be one shalom, and that's not true. But he said, Abraham should not destroy some. Yeah. Abraham, you know, you know, you know, you well, Avram is pre-halachic, but Avram is pre-halachic, and conversations with God don't relate to halachah in any way at all, so I don't need to deal with Avram. Hillel's trying to make the society work. Yeah, he's, I know he's trying to make society work, but does he have an obligation to be the second principle in order to make society work? Well, that depends on... So that you know, that's the far afield. The question of what what halachic obli- you know what obligations devolve, what legal obligations devolve on those people who make the law, right? The meta obligations, right? What are um, right, the obligations of poskim, the obligations of members of Sanhedrin? And that's a good question. I don't think the issue is different in kind. I think it's the same kind of question. It just may be that there's a separate, there's a special set of of obligations that devolve. As individual people, right? Do you have an obligation when you see? Some, right, when you see person X being um, being mean to person Y, or when you see a society being structured in such a way so that there are hardworking people who nonetheless have to take charity. So what's your obligation? Is your obligation to transform the society? Do you have to actually go vote? Do you have to run for office? Right, the same kind, right? And, or is it the obligation only incurred, incurred once you are in office? All those are perfectly reasonable. Okay, last, um, last thing I want to set out here in the last two pages of the source you can read yourselves later. I discovered as preparing this year, I'd actually written out parts of this years ago. Uh, so I figured I'd just give you the write-up and then you can compare afterwards what I said tonight to what I thought uh, five or six years ago. Uh, but then buy the book when it comes out so you can, <laughs> you can see what's changed as a result. So the, the last, um, the last uh, thing I want to take out is, is the Rambam and Hilchot Deod. So Rambam and Hilchot Deod very famously talks about the middle path. Um, right, that I think everyone knows, right? Then everyone, you know, the comparison, is it the same as the Aristotelian golden mean? Is it not the same as the Aristotelian golden mean? Is it a static equilibrium? Is it a dynamic equilibrium? You can have all the, all the sorts of fun things reading that. Uh, to me, what is really powerful with the Ramam is that he doesn't actually mandate the golden mean necessarily. He talks about there being two kinds of people. The two kinds of people are the Chacham and the Chassid. And the Chacham, he says, Always works on the intermediate on the on the intermediate path, which is equidistant from each extreme. And the and the chachamim, the first chachamim commanded that you should always be measuring and tailoring yourself to be an absolute centrist. Right. Centrist orthodoxy, absolutely. But then he says there are people called the chassidim, and the chassidim do not do this at all. The chassidim deliberately tend towards one extreme or the other. Um, so, right, so they tend to be exceedingly shafel ruach, which you know, he translates govalev and shafel ruach. So, the, you know, it's that high-heartedness and low-spiritedness. The problem is that high-hearted is not an English term, and low-spirited in, in America means depression as opposed to humility. So, these are right, these are hard terms to translate. Uh, but you know, really, arrogance and humility are probably the best um, the best uh, analogy. Um, and it's, I mean, it says the same holds from all. All the same traits. So here, if you pick it up, five lines from the bottom, six, five lines from the bottom, he says the first Chassidim, right? So he has his Chassidim Rishonim and he has his Chachamim Rishonim. So the, the Chassidim Rishonim would tilt their traits from the intermediate path towards the two extremes. 
some trace towards the last extreme, and some towards the first extreme. This is what is meant by Lifnim Mishirat Hadin. Lifnim Mishirat Hadin is to not walk the intermediate path, and to be a Hasid rather than a Chacham. And then, he says, we are commanded to walk in the intermediate paths. And this is what the scripture means by the um, right. But he says this, these are the tovim v'yisharim. So that's the same pasuk that Ramban quoted. V'asita tov v'hayashar. The Ramban quotes it also. And then he, right, he says that's what v'halachta b'drachav means. V'halachta b'drachav means to be to act like the chacham. And yet he has the chasid. So what is le- what is there left for the chasid if the chacham is following in God's ways, and we are commanded? to act like the Chacham, why is the Chassid a Chassid, not a Rasha? I mean, we have to be careful here. Right? He doesn't mean, he has types of people, right? he says, who, because, right, because they feel their nature going one way, they go to the other extreme to pull themselves back. Those are Chachamim. Chassidim are people whose nature would be perfectly fine, it seems. Right? They, could, right? they don't have, they, they don't have, they're not compensating they're going with it, right? Their nature pulls them towards this extreme, and they go with it. So, it seems to me that Ramam is carving out a space, which um, which he says that the halacha is the is the intermediate path, but then there is a, a there is a wholly different way of experiencing religion, and that is the way of the Hasid. Um, and the way, right, the way, the way, the way of Chassid is, is much more um, idio, much more idiosyncratic. And his language about this is really, like, fascinatingly ambiguous and ambivalent, right? Because he refers to it as Mishu midakdek al atzmo bioter, somebody who is more particular with themselves. They are the, they are the, um, they are the Chassid as opposed to Chacham. Um, so, it seems to me that it's at least possible to say that somehow in the Ramam what he's trying to say is that we need to leave, that the distinction between these two types of experience is that there has to be space in religious experience for the Hasid. So, leg- right, so when we legislate, and this goes together with the other piece, when we legislate, we make everyone do what is good for most people most of the time. And we constrict the religious experience of others. So the goal is to make sure that the expansion of halakha does not restrict the variety of religious experiences to the point that people whose nature isn't to be intermediate, but people who have tendencies towards extremes that can be positive, are, um, right, there's space left for them. Now, I think that there's a problem here, because I think what Rambam tells you and, um, is that no society could function if everyone were chassidim. That's the, right, a society... A society needs universalizability, right? So the law has to be something that if everyone did it, the society could survive. So, for example, the law has to be, if there's a law, that everyone has a chiyav of puravu. Right? Because if you have a society where everybody goes to the extreme and decides that they're going to be celibate, so that society dies out. It doesn't mean that there isn't room in a society for celibates. It just means that the law has to be that everybody has an obligation to procreate, and that one matters so much that we make it part of the law, and to be a celibate, you have to define yourself in some space outside the law, like um, Rabbi um, uh, like Ben Azai, 
right, who's, right, who's defined as so attached to Torah that he's onus, right, he's compelled, and so you can't hold him responsible for failing to procreate. Right? So create a space outside the law for him, but the law has to be that. So it seems to me that that is another way, uh, another way to provide differences between halakha and non-halakha, that halakha are the things that it's important enough that we make everyone do them, even though sometimes doing them is counterproductive for you. And non-halakha are the things that are really, really good for most people and you really have to do them, but we recognize that there's some people for whom that is not the right thing to do. And it's important enough to not do it. So that, that is my, that, I think that's a set of frameworks as to, how you, as to how you can define the difference between halakha and non-halakha. You can define it in terms of generally an obliga- a need for autonomy. You can define it as creating space for particular people to do particular things. You can define it as recognizing the difference between the things that are practical in a society and the things that we want everyone to, um, to want to be. You can read um, Professor Fuller's actual, uh, actual distinction, which I think is somewhat, um, is somewhat sharper um, than that. And you, know, you, can, you can argue much less interesting things just about how practically we can't write everything down um, so you know, or, we're, or God wanted to leave room for us, so He wrote the basic book so we could write the infinite commentaries. Uh, so there would be something for us to do. Those are much less interesting to me um, than the others. All right, as always, thank you very much for coming out and listening. Um, and I will, I guess, look forward to uh, seeing you again next summer. <laughs> this again, although there may be opportunities during the year as well. Next Tuesday, um, next Wednesday, sorry, next Wednesday, Rabbi Jonathan Ziering is coming. Uh, who some of you may remember was here for four summers and uh, has been giving a whole series of really fascinating shirim for years now that are very much in the spirit of the kind of thing um, we kind of thing we do here. So I encourage everyone to come out next Wednesday night um, for him. Um, if you really need to, I'll argue with him so we can have some entertainment uh, as well. I'm sure I'll find something to disagree with, uh, but it's always great to have him back. And um, yeah, thank you, Israel, again for hosting. <laughs>